<laughs> All right, it's on now. Uh, hopefully most of you have this without my piece of gum there in the corner. Um, we've looked at this several times. I'm not going to go over it in any detail today because we have uh, seen it, but a 30-second recap. As we're thinking theologically, we recognize, or we're trying to recognize, that there are some things that are central to Christian faith. Uh, and here we have Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, the cross. Um, by the way, David Dewar put this together. It's very nice, much better than the handwritten thing that where I use Kleenex box to get my line straight and so forth. Um, so there are some things that are central to Christian faith. But because some things are central, it doesn't mean that everything else is up for grabs. Uh, central things um, help help anchor us, uh, help us keep um, understand what our foundation is, uh, but everything else is not necessarily then up for grabs. Because some things are central, like because of who the Father is, because of who the Son is, because of who the Holy Spirit is, there are some things that necessarily follow from that. It doesn't mean they're central, but they are necessary because of who the good Creator God is, because of who Jesus Christ is, because of the Holy Spirit and His mission and His empowering witness. Some things are necessary to the Christian faith that flow out of that. Uh, there are some areas that are debatable, and this is why uh, you see this in the Christian world, where you've got the, the Wesleyans and the Reformed and the Church of Christ and the Catholic and the Orthodox. There's a realm of area where it's not always entirely clear um, how uh, the central confession of who God the Father, Jesus the Son, and the Holy Spirit is, um, how that might get lived out um, in certain areas, particularly as Christianity moves across cultures and times. And uh, because of who God is and um, who we are called to be, there are some things that are explicitly outside uh, the Christian faith. How we distinguish that, um, we see in these four corners, or four corners, the, uh, whatever, I don't know how to talk about this, the vertical, axis. horizontal axis, axes. Um, so the biblical plot line helps us uh, distinguish this. The clear and repeated teachings in Scripture, those patterns you see that show up again and again, uh, how Jesus teaches us that it all uh, hinges or it's all uh, built on love of God and love of neighbor, and the great tradition. Um, all, all this is held in tension in re the reasoning and discernment that happens in community. It's not me and my Bible alone, but what we do in community. So that is a quick recap. What we're doing in this semester's class particularly is focusing on the biblical plot line. To understand uh, the Christian faith better, we need to understand what's going on uh, through Scripture. So today, we're going to pick up on the part of uh, the biblical plot line where we get the kings and, uh, and when Israel goes into <coughs> exile. And then I'm going to suggest uh, or, or try to make um, a case for how that biblical plot line then gets us thinking about maybe what's central and what's necessary. So not just knowing the story. But uh, I'll give you an example of why I think knowing the story really matters. So we started with Adam and how God uh, called Adam and Eve and gave them a vocation to bear the image of God, to rule and care for creation. And then things go wrong. God calls Abraham and Sarah. Covenants with Abraham, as we've seen, it's good, uh, but not perfect. Then God elects Abraham's descendants, Israel. He, uh, with a mighty hand and outstretched stretched arm, uh, delivers them out of Egypt and takes them to the promised land where he makes covenant with them. And um, that covenant, that law that he gives them is designed for their good. It's designed to help them be a witness to the nations. 
so they might carry on that main vocation to bless the nations, to be a witness to who God is. <coughs> they enter the promised land uh, after some, uh, some mess-ups in the wilderness. They enter the promised land, and you expect at this point in Israel's story that things are finally going to be right. They're in the promised land. Uh, they have maybe kind of driven out the nations before then. They've got the law. And this is the book of Judges, where Israel is a disaster. Uh, you've got these leaders that rise up, like Samson, and even their leaders are a mess. And so God is working with this people who are far from perfect, trying to help them become the people they were, are meant to be. Um, so after they enter the land, the judges don't do everything the judges are supposed to do. Israel is still um, something of a disaster. They say to, uh, to Samuel, we want a king like the other nations have. Um, and on the one hand, it's good that they recognize that things aren't the way they should be. Uh, on the other hand, when God hears them say, we want a king like the other nations have, his response is to say to Samuel, the prophet, they have rejected me as their king. Uh, there is something of a sad note to this. Um, that were, were, were Israel the people they were meant to be, they would see God as their king. It doesn't mean there won't be a place maybe down the road for a human king. Uh, but what they're looking for is a king like the other nations have. Uh, maybe some sort of uh, great warrior leader or something. So God sees it as a rejection of himself as king. But as God tends to do, he partners with his people, sometimes even in their poor choices. It's, um, it's an interesting move that God makes throughout, where he will meet people in their brokenness and walk with them in their brokenness to try to help them bring good. You see this with Moses. Moses has killed a guy. He's out in the wilderness. God calls him, and Moses is like, ah, I'm not a good speaker. And God's like, okay, well, I'll, give, you know, I'll send your brother with you. God meets people in their brokenness, even when they don't live up to what they are meant to do. He partners with them. So he partners with Israel, uh, even to the point of saying uh, to David, this king who uh, is, is, has um, what, a man after God's own heart, partners with David, promises to give David an everlasting dynasty. Uh, and that's, that's something that's going to continue to ring throughout Israel's story as they get driven into exile. What about this promise of an everlasting dynasty? And not only that, earlier on in Deuteronomy, it's as though God knew what was coming, and he provides laws. If you get a king, here's the kind of thing uh, that should guide the king. The king should not acquire too many horses, too many foreign wives, um, too much money, and should not be overbearing to his subjects. So horses, it's not like God is anti-equestrian or something like that, but horses represent military might. This king should not put his hope in military might. Too many foreign wives. Uh, part of the problem with foreign wives, insert whatever joke you want here, um, is uh, that it, it's uh, attached to an alliance with other foreign powers and with foreign gods. So it's not the women or the wives necessarily, it's the foreign alliances and the foreign gods. So don't trust in military might. Don't trust in foreign alliances and foreign gods. Don't trust in money, too. Don't accumulate lots of money. And don't let the power go to your head. Don't be overbearing to your subjects. These are the kinds of things that a king is supposed to do. If you've ever read the book of First uh, and Second Samuel and First and Second Kings, you realize that while there are some promising moments uh, among the kings, you've got your Josiahs, you've got the first half of David's reign. You've got the first of the beginning of Solomon's reign where there's wisdom and goodness and bravery and righteousness, uh, that overall uh, it is a disaster. 
the kings are not the kings that Israel should have had. Um, Solomon is a great example. Uh, if the kingly laws are don't acquire what, too many horses, too many foreign wives, too much money, and don't be overbearing, guess what Solomon does? Basically breaks all of those rules, and his son, uh, Rehoboam, uh, takes that to the next level, and the kingdom is divided. So you go from King Saul, who is a mess, King David, okay, and then messes up, King Solomon, great start, terrible end, and then his son, we're four kings in, and the kingdom is divided. Because the kings are not listening, they're not representing God uh, the way they are meant to. And so, before long, this nation that is supposed to bless the world, that's supposed to be a witness uh, to the goodness of God, to how people are to dwell together, this nation uh, finds itself uh, driven into exile. First, the northern kingdom gets defeated by the Assyrians, and then the southern kingdom uh, by the Babylonians. Um, with the Old Testament then ending in a kind of limbo, what about God's promise to David? What about that everlasting dynasty? Have we screwed up so much that that promise is no longer valid? And what about God's desire to be our king? Is it possible for David's dynasty to reign and for God to be our king? We know the answer to that, but they may not have. Is there anyone who can be king who will not put his faith in military might and money and foreign allegiances and who won't be overbearing? What kind of Messiah might that look like? You see how the biblical plotline is pointing us uh, to something greater. Um, so this is um, a little bit of, of where we are. Let me keep an eye on the time. All right, good. We've got about eight minutes. So if that's the, the plot line, how might this shape our theology? So in the book of Acts, you have this interesting line where Luke talks about the apostles who did not cease. They did not cease proclaiming the gospel or the good news as it sometimes gets translated. That Jesus is the Christ, which, so we hear that, right? Christ, Messiah, King, is a way of saying all that. They did not cease proclaiming the good news or the gospel that Jesus is the Christ. This is Israel's long-awaited restoring King. So what, what Luke is drawing our attention to is that the gospel, we're thinking the gospel is that which is either central or necessary, depending on how you want to plot things, but either way, it's right up there close. The gospel is that Jesus <coughs> is Messiah. That is a crucial claim to make. It's not merely the gospel being that Jesus died, so our sins are forgiven, so we go to heaven when we die, but the gospel is that Jesus is the Messiah. So what, what might we make out of that? Don't hear me saying the whole... Forgiveness and going to heaven is, is completely wrong. I'm saying it's, it's maybe too narrow. To claim that Jesus is the Messiah tells us, um, let me think of how I plotted this. <coughs> maybe, uh, first of all, to claim that Jesus is the Messiah is to tell us that the gospel has something to do with a fulfillment of Israel's... Um, I know you guys hate the language of story, or some of you do, but know that I'm not meaning fiction. It's 
is kind of where their path is leading, their story or their uh, calling. What Israel was meant to be about, where their history was leading up to, is to the Messiah. You with me so far? So to claim if we're going to preach the gospel, uh, you can't preach the gospel apart from a claim about Jesus being the Messiah, which is a claim that roots him to Israel. I'm not about to get modern-day political. I think that's missing the point. Um, to claim he's a fulfillment of Israel's story then means you need to know something about the story, which is what we've been doing the last seven or eight weeks. And so, uh, as I referenced, you've got Adam, and you've got Abraham, and you've got Israel, and the Torah, or the law, and the kings. And notice some of the stuff you might get uh, from what God was doing with them. Adam, as we've seen, was supposed to care and rule the creation and to bear the image of God. Notice that this has a kind of priestly and kingly, kingly is an adjective, um, vocation. Ruling sounds kind of kingly. Caring. This is the same language you get in Leviticus for the priest. They are to represent God uh, and, and their proper rule of creation. Abraham, he carries out this priestly role that you'll see him praying for folks like Ahimelech, and he is to bless the nations through his offspring. Israel, guess what they are called? They are meant to be is a kingdom of priests. Notice, priestly, kingly vocation up here. Israel, they are to be a kingdom of priests who also represent God. So, image representing God, priestly, kingly. Israel's doing this kind of thing. What is Israel to be about there to represent God to the nations, carrying out that vocation that God has for them? The law is designed to teach them how to love God and love neighbor. As we've seen, uh, it's showing them a way to uh, deal with some of the sin problem as it, as it um, guides them into how to deal with social brokenness. How do you relate to your neighbor with physical brokenness? How do you relate uh, to the land and to your animals uh, and spiritual brokenness? How do we relate to God? Things that have gone wrong, Israel is, is given instructions about how they might begin to mend things. And as they become a people who begin to mend things, it is meant to bless the nations. They have this kingly and priestly role. While there is a priestly tribe, the whole nation can take on that priestly role in the way they image or represent God to the world. The kings, obviously they have a kingly role. Uh, they are to represent God in the way that uh, they rule. So you can see, obviously, kingly. I know you can read my handwriting. Uh, representative role. They are supposed to bring justice or be a model of justice and rightness, making things right. So this brief recap, what I want you to see from this, is how uh, what's going on in here is not only focused on sin management. This is Scott McKnight's language. When we tell the gospel, and we tell only the gospel of sin management, what we're telling is too narrow of a story. That the plot line is showing us that, that if we were to understand what's central and what's necessary, we have to understand that in light of what God has been doing through Israel. And what God has do, been doing through Israel is not only, he's certainly dealing with the sin problem, but he's doing more than that. He's helping show people how to properly care and rule and bear his image. He's showing people how to best bring restoration physically, socially, spiritually. Following me so far? This is, this is crucial kind of stuff. As I was trying to explain this to my... Uh, to my students, 
Um, how many of y'all watched uh, Lost? All right, maybe about half of you. First three seasons of Lost, amazing. Uh, and then you get to the six and you're like, they're going to wrap up this story. We're going to figure out about the shadow monster and all this stuff. And then you get to the end of it, and it doesn't wrap it up at all. You're like, J.J. Abrams, that's a terrible way to end it. You opened a story this way, but you didn't end it right. When we tell the gospel of sin management, we have told this beautiful story and then ended it in this weird way that doesn't fulfill what the whole story has been leading up to. We pull a J.J. Abrams. Uh, and it's unsatisfying. And it, it leads people to think, does the Old Testament even matter? What's all that stuff even about? All we need to know is about who Jesus is and that he died. Right? All we need to know is Jesus is God and then he died. We don't need to worry about his life. I don't know what, you're just biding time before he saved us from our sins. But that is one major important piece, but it's not the whole thing. Notice how what Jesus was doing in his life, which we'll talk about more next Sunday, Jesus is showing us what it means to properly image God, what it means to properly uh, be this kind of priestly, uh, kingly role. He's showing us uh, that if we are to, to carry out our vocation, as God intended for Adam and for Abraham and Israel, this is what it looks like to its fullness. The gospel of sin management is too narrow. The gospel that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, is, is much more satisfying and fulfilling. And the gospel of sin management, discipleship is optional. Well, I could follow Jesus' teaching, but it doesn't really matter. That's like stars in your crown or something. What really matters is I've said the prayer, I got baptized, or whatever tradition you come from, so that when I die, boom, things are taken care of. The disciple that Jesus is Messiah, discipleship, or excuse me, the gospel that Jesus is Messiah, Messiah, discipleship becomes crucial, necessary. To call Jesus king is to pledge your allegiance to him. It is not to speak about what you think he's done, but it's to speak about what you think he's done and then give your life to him and to follow him. Discipleship is crucial because you know that who he is is a model of who you are to be. To be a Jesus, uh, to, to claim the gospel of Jesus Christ is to claim, I am going to follow him. With fits and starts and failings, but nonetheless I'm going to follow him because part of following him is the good news. Part of following him is where life is found. Life now, as we seek to live and to uh, fulfill the purpose for which we all have been called as a kingdom of priests. This is First Peter language. It's not just Israel. All of you who are Christians bear the title or are part of this community of a kingdom of priests. How you live, how you love, uh, what you embody is to represent God and bless the world. We know what's central. We know what the gospel is. It gives us a better sense of what's necessary. And then you see maybe a little bit more about what might no longer fit. All right, Lauren, it took a minute of your time. Thanks a lot. Okay, so Israel's story is our story. And um, I'm glad Josh mentioned that uh, the way we disciple is in fits and starts and failings because that is certainly what we see in Israel's story as well. And I think we have something to learn from how they process that in terms of our own discipleship and our the kind of false starts that we often encounter. So uh, when we think about the significance of naming in the Genesis narrative, uh, think about almost always when someone gets a new name or something really important happening theologically. So we see Adam naming Eve, identifying their connection and complementarity. 
There's the naming of Abraham and Sarah. And then we have this really interesting story in Genesis 32 where Jacob gets a new name. Uh, now, Jacob means literally something like grabs the heel. Uh, if you know, you know his story, he's the supplanter. Um, kind of symbolizes his selfish agenda in life, who he's been. And then we have the story where he gets this new name, Israel, which means uh, struggles or wrestles with God. Now, another uh, thing that we can always pay attention to in, as we're reading the Old Testament is why do these stories live on in Israel's memory? Why are they always returned to? So this is one that we can think about in that respect is not just being about Jacob's identity, but about theirs as well. So Israel wrestles with God. And this is what it means to be Israel. Okay, so let's look at that text. I'll read a little bit from Genesis 32. So in the narrative, um, Jacob is going to meet his brother Esau, who he's betrayed, right? He's supplanted. Um, and he is anxious about this. He knows Esau has the, the power to exterminate his whole family. So in verse 11, he's praying to God, Deliver me, please, from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau. For I am afraid of him. He may come and kill us all, the mothers with the children. Yet... You have said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be counted because of their number. So he's reminding God of this promise. You said you were going to make my family great. You were going to use my family to bless all nations. Okay, and then let's skip down. You could start in verse 22, reading about, then he encounters this mysterious stranger in the night before he's supposed to go meet his brother. And verse 24 tells us, if I skip on down, uh, that he was left alone and a man wrestled with him until daybreak. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he struck him on the hip socket and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, let me go for the day is breaking. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. So he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then the man said, you shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with humans and have prevailed. Okay, and then Jacob asks his name. He refuses to tell him, but he does bless him. And then Jacob says, I have seen God face to face. So he makes the conclusion, I have seen God. Uh, and yet my life has been preserved. And he leaves uh, with this blessing, but he leaves with a limp. <coughs> he limps because of his hip. Okay, so this is a really important story, and so we need to think about what's happening here. Uh, first of all, Jacob wants to be blessed. Uh, given that the blessing of Abraham, though, we've been talking about this, is one of participating in God's work, right? It's one of uh, partnering with God. You're being invited into this covenant relationship to be the agents of God's renewal in creation. And Jacob hasn't fulfilled that, so he's anxious about possibly being outside of that covenant promise at this point. Uh, perhaps he's also anxious because he has wrestled with God. Interestingly, the divine figure strikes him on the hip, causing him to limp for life. This is his lifelong reminder that he's wrestled with God. And you can see this in Israel's psyche as well. We are the people who struggle with God, and we are the people who limp. Um, what's happening theologically in uh, Jacob prevailing, him winning the wrestling match? Uh, one of my, I asked that question to my class, and one of them said, Jacob must have been crazy ripped. 
<laughs> I was like, hey, let's, let's think a little beyond that. <clears throat> uh, we could think of this as God letting Jacob win. And why, why would he do this? Well, perhaps there's something in the wrestling that's important, that's formative. There's something about God empowering Jacob to enter into an authentic relationship with him. So we see that wrestling with God is painful, but it is transformative. The blessing clarifies that Jacob is an heir to the Abrahamic promise. His identity is transformed, uh, and it's in the wrestling that he is transformed and given courage to move further down the road to meet his brother. So we can hear here that Israel says, we are the people who struggle with God. We are the people who limp. But there's also this uh, kind of affirmation, we are not afraid to struggle with God. We're not afraid to wrestle. So this connects, I think, with the sort of rhythm we see in Israel's story of uh, disorientation and reorientation, of exile and return. There's always this anxiety about falling away from their purpose in the land, which is really punctuated in times of exile. Uh, when they're exiled to Assyria with the destruction of the temple, there's this question of, are we, have we moved outside of the covenant role we've been given or the promises? So um, the real exile, the original one, is the leaving home moment in Eden, right? You're exiled from Eden, and there's always this hope of return to that with that trajectory of the new Eden, the, the fully restored Eden. So we can think of uh, Israel's multiple exiles and restorations reenacting that, that kind of primal expulsion, symbolically expressing the hope for homecoming, restoration, and renewal. And there's always this return to the promise to Abraham that, God, you said you were going to see this happen, regardless of you know, what happens on our end. But it, you know, there's this wrestling with that. Is God going to see his promises to fruition? God also makes these spectacular promises to David. His royal house will continue forever. So you can see when exile comes, the question is, well, what about those promises? Are they still good? Were we wrong? Did we misunderstand God? So there's this wrestling that happens, right? Uh, when you read the Psalms, you see a lot of that wrestling being played out. Psalm 89 is pretty much putting the question before God. Uh, you've made all these promises. They're, we're going to recite them, and then we're in this terrible you know, place in terms of exile. What are you going to do about it? That's the question. Um, and then there's also Psalms of Lament. And this is where I think there's a really important uh, thread that kind of weaves its way through all this about struggling with God. If God has divine order in mind, and God is transcendent and all-powerful, so th these Lament Psalms ask, how long will this chaos go on? What are you doing? Where are you? Why aren't you stepping in and setting things right? So I asked Matt to read a few verses from Psalm 88 for us to hear. And, and let, we should remember, this is a hymn that would have been sung in the temple for all the people. This is Psalm 88, starting with verse 13 through the end. But I, O Lord, cry out to you. In the morning my prayer comes before you. O Lord, why do you cast me off? Why do you hide your face from me? Wretched and close to death from my youth up, I suffer your terrors. I am desperate. Your wrath has swept over me. Your dread assaults destroy me. 
They surround me like a flood all day long. From all sides, they close in on me. You have caused my friend and my neighbor to shun me. My companions are in darkness. Does not sound very happy. And the ending there does not sound very comforting, does it? Uh, so to think about what's happening here uh, in the psalm of lament, uh, the, the kind of uh, language that's being used, what, what's being uttered before God. Uh, first of all, the people are angry. The people are frustrated with God. But they are still praying. Um, we can think of this in terms of uh, there being a kind of a kind of demand before God. You put me here. There's even a kind of accusatory tone, right? It's pretty bold. Um, you did this to me. You put me here. And yet, uh, the act of praying this prayer to God is still an act of faith because it's saying you can do something about it. I know you can. I believe that. And I believe that your, rest, your, your restoring power, your restoration plan for the creation still holds somehow. So I think there's an interesting connection with Jacob that we can see here in this psalm being preserved in the, the memory of Israel, uh, one that's returned to time and again, even a, in a corporate worship setting, is that God is not put off by being in relationship with people who wrestle with him. And I wonder uh, when I read these psalms and I hear them, if we have enough space for this sort of thing in our worship, in our corporate worship settings. Do our churches have space for lament? I think we need to have it. We need to find ways to create that. Uh, to lament systemic chaos that feels beyond our ability to counteract. Global destruction, sexual abuse, systemic bigotries. We need to cry out on behalf of those whose voices are silenced. And I think we need to speak to God about our, our losses and griefs in honest ways. And I think um, we praise maybe too easily or too much sometimes that we need more space for this kind of wrestling with God. Uh, the psalm maintains that God saves. But it also says, I cry out to you day and night and you don't answer me. It's not a rejection of God, it affirms who God is, but it is frustrated. But you see the similar dynamic in Jacob's demand that God bless him. I will not stop wrestling with you until you bless me. This is how Israel endures. They wrestle with God. This is Israel's story and it's our story. God doesn't always explain why things are happening or how things are going to be resolved. But there is value in the protest. There's value in the wrestling. Something happens to us in the wrestling because otherwise our faith just stays right here. It's just skin deep. It's just the inheritance of our parents. Through the lamenting, we are transformed. We're given courage to move forward in our purpose to be God's people, to work to create the conditions of peace out of chaos in the world. And we need to return time and again to the fact 
that in the midst of Israel's ambiguity, there develops a clear hope for a new king. One who will defend the cause of the poor, give deliverance to the needy, and crush the oppressor. That's in Psalm 72. The king turns into a servant, Yahweh's servant, the one who must become Israel because Israel cannot be obedient to its vocation. N.T. Wright describes the servant this way. The servant will be cast away, like Israel in exile, overwhelmed with shame, suffering, and death, and then brought through out on the other side. This message is taken up in different, though converging, ways in other prophecies, not least in Jeremiah, through the theme of the New Covenant, and Ezekiel as he declares that God will cleanse his people, give them a new heart, and take them back to their own land in a rescue operation for which the only appropriate metaphor is the resurrection of the dead. And that is what we look to as we look to this new covenant, which is what we encounter in Christ. And we join Israel by saying, looking at the suffering servant, he was wounded for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the punishment that made us whole, and by his bruises we are healed. And that's Isaiah 53. I think we have a little time for discussion. Yeah. I think when we we pay attention to what God is doing from from Old Testament to New Testament, looking at the plot line, we see that things are messy. It's not like a clean story of everyone who does good gets good, everyone who does bad gets bad. Mm -hmm. You see this struggle, even God choosing a barren couple there early on. And you hear people crying out to God with, with Hannah, who's not able to have a child, and God hearing her. That, uh, and this, this kind of thing happens throughout where God is aware of the messiness and brokenness. Uh, scripture is very aware of the messiness and brokenness. It's very aware that things don't work out the way they should. And it invites us... Uh, not to put a kind of pretty ribbon around and pretend it's not bad, but to say, this, is, this sucks. This isn't how it should be. Uh, this is painful, and God, where are you in this? Um, so Lauren and I are taking care of this little, little baby who's, um, who, who's going through withdrawal right now. This sucks, right? I mean, it's not fair. This baby didn't do anything wrong. God where are you in this? Why did you let this happen? What chance does this little child have with such a screwed up, uh, you know, entrance into the world? It is an invitation to say, it's not right, God. Where are you? One of the most powerful things I ever read with regard to this was from our uh, colleague, John Mark Hicks, who was quoting Madeline Lingle. And she wrote this little thing that said, now let me finish. This might be a little hook. Dear God, I hate you. Love Madeline. And he said, and John Mark has gone through some serious loss, it, it was just a powerful line to him because on the one hand, it, it, it was a, enabled this kind of vulnerable language. I hate you. Why did you let this happen? But on the other hand, it ends with love Madeline. In other words, but I still trust you. I still know that you are the one who I place my hope in. And that simple I hate you love uh, is... is Ideally, not where we end up, but if that's where we are, it's okay to voice that. God can handle 
that kind of raw vulnerability. He sent his son, who has experienced the weight of sin, who has said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He can handle our own cry. Where are you? Why have you forsaken me or them or him or her? There is space for that, and we are taught that um, through this uh, beautiful messiness um, of Scripture. Um, Matt, do you want to sure. do a little, lead a little Q&A or give some closing thoughts? Does anybody have a burning question? Go. I think uh, the discussion of kings is a, just an interesting, relevant topic this Sunday. In some liturgical traditions, I think there's something we can learn from. Their last Sunday was Christ the King Sunday. And I was doing some reading on it this last week. And it's actually the newest kind of piece on the liturgical calendar. And it came into, it was proclaimed in 1925 in a, because of the rise of dictatorships around the world. And I just think it's a beautiful reminder year after year after year that the church is reminded we don't trust the chariots or money or powers, we trust in Christ who is everlasting. And I think it's just tremendously relevant, particularly this week in to, to remind us of our eyes on Christ. Yeah, yeah, the, this kind of time, it trains us to put our hope in the political, you know, getting the right people in office. That's where our, our it, it, it's pulling at our, our emotions or our fear to place our hope there. And while we do have a responsibility to maybe engage in that, our ultimate hope is in Christ. And our ultimate hope for things to be set right is not to get the right people in office, is but is for the for God to work through his kingdom of priests to live in Christ-like ways. Um, yeah. I think in terms of, in terms of short takeaways, uh, one of the things I heard in your first piece, Josh, um, that caught my attention was, was this distinction, the difference between sin management as the gospel, and I think this was your phrase, imaging God or, or representing the kingdom. And to me, that's a, that's a fundamentally different way of understanding what, what the Bible, what Scripture explains to us, or rather tries to show us about what it means to, to, to be human. Can um, I clarify? Yeah. It's not that sin doesn't matter, but forgiveness of sins is a means to the end of living as we are meant to live. When forgiveness of sin becomes the end in itself, that's where I think we're telling the story, a too small of a story. So. And, that, and that Jesus... And this is going to sound blasphemous, but I don't mean it to be that way. And that if our image of Jesus is that he's the guy who paid our debt and we're done, that's much too small an image of Jesus. I mean, that's a big thing, but it's much too small. Remembering that Jesus is, is the king, the king of all kings, then means that, that faith for us isn't transactional like this suggests. Oh, he's done his deal for us and we're done. It means that it's not a relationship. It means that faith isn't transactional. It's not about it's not about a moment of redemption. It's about a life of fidelity. There used to be an old song, uh, "Onward, Christian Soldiers," and for a lot of reasons, a lot of people don't like that song anymore for certain for some militaristic overtones. On the other hand, underneath. <coughs> 
the military part of it. I think what that song reminds us of is what it means to be a soldier, not necessarily for a nation, but to be someone devoted to a cause. If you think about what good soldiers are, they're people who are distinguished by their fidelity to their leader, their, their loyalty to the fight, to the cause, and by their obedience and sense of duty. There's a way they live and act that shows because of who they follow. And, and to me, that's a, a different way of thinking about this image. Here, we just got our debt paid. We're free. Well, I mean, that's a good news, but that's not a way of life. Unless it's followed by that life of fidelity. Our job now is to, is to represent, to use probably what's already old-fashioned now, but to be. Not just to be, but to, to act in certain ways. <coughs> From Lawrence, I took away the notion of wrestling with God. If, if the name Israel was not only a name for Jacob, but also became the name for that people back then and got picked up and is applied to us now as part of the church, then maybe loving God, maybe having a relationship with God, is supposed to feel like wrestling all night long and not exactly winning, or at least not without scars. Maybe it's, maybe it's not supposed to feel like a snuggle or like a hug. Maybe it's supposed to wear us out and leave us bent. And that the other piece of what Lawrence said, that to complain about that, especially to God, that lament is not a sign of doubt, that that kind of anger that we feel is an act of faith. If you didn't believe in somebody, you wouldn't be angry. When I have a student who, who fails to turn in an assignment, sometimes I'm not angry because I don't believe in them. And you don't have to grade it. And I don't have to grade it. <laughs> but there are other students who didn't turn an assignment that I wanted to grade. And I'm disappointed. I'm angry at them for whatever it was that kept them from being able to do what I, I know they could have done. Does that make, that's how I make sense of it, at least for me. And that may, reminds me too then that this is not a, the gospel is not about living happily ever after, like the prosperity gospel that we all wish were sort of true if it happens to us, but that the gospel calls us to a life that will always be filled with lamentation and struggle. It's a broken world that both, whether you vote red or you vote blue, that both sides are often guilty of expecting to make God's kingdom in our image on this earth. And that's why we get so caught up about it and so angry about who's in office or who's not. But that's the point is, that's not the point. The point is representing the kingdom no matter who's in office, because the world's still going to be broken. And no matter who we elect is not going to be the king of kings. When things happen, like the synagogue shooting or any of the school shootings, when bad things happen, we should be upset. We should mourn. We don't do that often enough, I think. It's so much more fun to praise and clap. It's much less comfortable and much more awkward to cry and weep. But that's part of faith, too. We have, I don't think we actually have time. Hilton's already left, so that means it was time to go. <laughs> but if you have questions, I'm sure um, yeah, we'll stick around for Josh at least will stick around. <laughs> Lawrence, kids might wait for him. Thanks for being here today.